1 John 2, 15 and 17. As you're making your way there, um, think back with me probably more to your childhood. And uh, maybe it was a school activity, maybe it was while you were at a camp. How many of you have played tug of war? Okay, I see almost all the hands raised. You can go ahead and put those hands down. Think back to the tug of war for a second. It may have just been one-on-one, -on -one, a one-on-one -on -one battle to see who had the most strength. Or maybe it was the most weight because we all know, you know, the weight, if you lean back against it, that helps too, right? But uh, I remember I, I worked at a Christian camp when I was, after my freshman year in college, I was down at a camp in Louisiana, and we did like this massive, it was a huge rope, it was like this thick probably, and it was very long, and we had probably, you know, 50, 50 kids on each end of this rope. And um, it was an interesting thing to watch, you know, everybody pulling with all their might and trying to see which way the rope would go back and forth. And by the way, kids, if you're ever in a tug of war situation, don't wrap the rope around your fingers. Um, I've actually heard of fingers being severed by that. So just a little, you know, practical word of wisdom for you. If you end up with tug of war, don't wrap it around your fingers. Just hold on to it. There you go. Freebie. You didn't think you'd get that this morning, right? How to keep your fingers intact. <laughs> so tug of war. The reason why I mentioned that is because in this passage, we're looking at uh, what the Apostle John is saying. And again, his whole emphasis, I think, is summed up in 1 John 5.13 that says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And we're going to be looking at a few verses here in 1 John chapter 2 that really talk about, do you have a love for the Father? A love for God? Or do you have a love for the world? And I think you almost find that if you have a love for God, that your love for the world is going to be very distant and it's going to be a far away thing. However, if you have a love for the world, your love for God and your love for the Father is going to be weak. All right, so it's almost a tug of war that is somewhat proportional that follows your affections. It follows your heart. If you love God, you're going to be far from the world. If you love the world and you're close to it, you're going to be far from God. So let's continue and look at this passage. 1 John chapter 2, let me read verses 15 through 17 as John writes this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So as we look at this, it begins um, at verse 15. John gives us an imperative, uh, a dogmatic statement of, hey, don't do this or do this. It says in verse 15, this is the imperative statement. So if you get nothing else from this message, come away with this. Okay, what he's saying? Do not love the world or the things in the world. Okay, that's his imperative main point statement. Don't love the world or the things that are in the world. So we're going to look a little bit more at what that is. So point number one is all that is in the world, this world system. The word there, world, is this Greek idea. It's the Greek word for cosmos. And it has this idea of the world system. 
The things that are in the world, world philosophies, world views, all of these kind of things are kind of summed up in this idea of the world. I'm going to turn to James 4, verse 4, and just kind of read a parallel verse that kind of emphasizes some of these same points. James 4, 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So all that is in the world, and we're given a little bit more insight as to what this world, what this cosmos, what it is that he's talking about, because he defines it with three different statements. Um, the first statement is the desires of the flesh. Then he talks about the desires of the eyes. And then lastly, he talks about the pride of in possessions. So those are the things that kind of define the all that is in the world that John comes out firing and saying, hey, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. So this gives us a little bit of insight when we dive into it a little bit. The desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. And the first two, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, as you, as you look at that, as you consider that, you think about the way that we are tempted right? And it seems like these two especially, they all kind of blur together. There's maybe not a lot of distinctions between it. But if you just consider the ways that you are tempted to reject God and choose pleasure, choose sin, choose the way that Brent Van Sickle wants to be his own God. However you want to think of that, it boils down a lot of times to, okay, what does Brent want? What do you want? Well, you want to be comfortable. You want people to cater to your wants and your desires, selfishness. Um, you think even of the desires of the eyes. You, you think back to King David, I think, gave us an example of how we need to be really careful with our eyes and the things that we set before our eyes and the lust and the appetites that our eyes have. King David, do you remember? He was on the rooftop of his palace and he was gazing out and what happened? He, his eyes set upon Bathsheba, who was a beautiful woman and she was bathing. And he immediately went from his eyes and something that in a sense he probably innocently saw and he dwelled on it. And from there, the desires of the flesh took over and he took action. He took steps so that he could fulfill his lust in his flesh. So he could sin. And he took action steps. He ended up sleeping with Bathsheba, impregnating Bathsheba. And then he tries to cover it up by having her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. So David, a man who was after God's own heart, we see how he allowed the eye gate to lead to sinful desires and how that manifested itself in adultery, how it manifested itself into really murder with her husband. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, you think um, in today's society, um, pornography is a huge thing, right? You think of it mainly for guys, but for gals alike, the eyes, the things that we naturally are drawn to. God created 
sexual relationship. He desired it to be in a relationship, a lifelong relationship between one man and one woman who are covenanted together in marriage. That's how he created it from the very beginning. That's what the pages of the Bible teach all throughout. And there are perversions of that. There are sinful ways that that's manifested. And you think of the pornography industry and how that's just one of these areas in which the eyes, the eye gates, that we've got to be concerned and careful with. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and then you see, lastly, the pride and possessions. You know, you think of um, a lot of, you know, we live in a, in a blessed country, don't we? I mean, you look at the political landscape and you see so much division and so forth, but you take a step back and you're like, man, the poorest of Americans are probably considered pretty wealthy when you consider the countries around the world. We have abundance. And it's very easy for us to, to be satisfied and find joy and find love and find motivation to accumulate and have stuff and to be proud about it. Farmington is one of those areas that you look around and you don't see slums. You look around and, and you see prosperity. You see gorgeous homes. You see the toys, the campers, boats, and, and none of these things are, are bad in and of themselves, right? Um, but some people, their, their life is wrapped around accumulating and this idea of, hey, he who has the most toys wins. You know, from an early age, we like toys, right? And we're, we're thrilled. We're, we're always looking for that next thing. I've got uh, one little boy, especially, who just has a birthday, and he is enamored by Legos. And leading up to his birthday, he was really looking forward to the next like Ninjago Lego set that he could get. And he was pumped about it. He did not let Jennifer and I rest on it. It was like constant, hey, am I gonna get this? Oh, I'd love to have this Lego set. And he got it and he loved it for a while. And he still will play with it some, but now it's almost like he's moved on to the next thing. Right? It's the next Lego set. And in Braden, I see myself. He learned that from his daddy. Right? Um, I've mentioned before, I, I enjoy sports. Um, pickleball is one of the sports that I enjoy. And the company that um, I represent, Engage Pickleball, they came out with a new paddle in the last month. And this week in the mail, I got the new paddle. And of course, you know, if you play golf or you play any kind of sport, it's always the quest for this new technology that's gonna make you a better player. I mean, at the end of the day, you end up finding out that it's more the magician than the wand, but you still want the cool wand, right? So I was eagerly wanting the shipment to come in the mail so I could have this new paddle to see if it might take my game to the next level, right? We're like that. I don't think I, me and Braden, I, I mean, one of my sons, are the only ones that are wired like this. We find joy, it, we also find it's fleeting joy, but we find joy in stuff. 
And we can even take the innocent stuff and things that, that are blessings and things that we can enjoy, but we end up building our lives around that and losing our focus and our love for God. So it talks about a little bit of what this world is. What, what is it? Well, it's, it can be the desires of the flesh. It can be the desires of the eyes. Temptations to sin. Temptations to find joy outside of the way that God has wired us to find joy and satisfaction in Him. And pride and possessions. It says it's not from the Father, but is from the world. Again, so he says the imperative, go back to that, the main point, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. And then he wraps that phrase up and says, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. And I don't know if this would be helpful, but again, it's kind of this paradigm, this tug of war paradigm that if God is over here and you find yourself in love with God, and you've got the world on that side of the room, the more you love God, the more you draw near to Him, you're naturally getting further away from the world the closer you draw to God. And unfortunately, the temptation is also the same, that as we turn our hearts and our affections to filling our desires, fulfilling our flesh, being tempted through our eyes and through the appetites of our sin nature. And as we end up taking pride in stuff and accumulating stuff, we take steps toward the world, and that's naturally drawing us further and further from our love for God. So you see, all that is in the world is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions. It's not from the Father. So again, love for God pushes out affection for the world, but conversely, love for the world pushes out your affection for God. By the way, um, let me go back just for a second. Let me read Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24. Jesus was talking... And it says this with the idea of possessions. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in regards to possessions, I think this time of year is probably a particularly good time to take inventory of your life and whether you love possessions more than you love God. Why do I say that? Because it's tax season, right? It's tax season, and how many of you have already had your tax appointment? Okay. So some of you all are dragging it out, waiting until April, whatever that deadline is. No, but that's a really good time because you end up evaluating maybe just in some tangible ways. Okay, do I love God more than I love things? And you check your credit card statements. You check your checkbook if you still do that. I know I don't do it nearly as much as I did a lot of years ago. But you just kind of follow the paper trail, right? You look at your charitable giving. And then you look at all your hobbies and other things that you can pour your money into. And that's a fairly tangible way to say, okay, where are my affections? Does reality, despite what I say, despite what I think, does it follow that you're manifesting a love for God? 
Are you spending your money in ways that will see more people in heaven? Ways that you can do that are giving to the local church, giving cheerfully, giving to other Christian organizations that are, that are reaching people for Jesus. I think it's a good chance for us to take stock and follow the paper trail and, and really tangibly kind of see, okay, I say I love God, but do I really love him? More than I love money, more than I love stuff. And we're given a couple motivations for this, right? The, the motivations have, hey, don't love the world, love God. Don't love him. And why is that? In verse 16, John says, for all that is in the world, or excuse me, verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires. Okay, so one of the motivations for this is, hey, the, the stuff that we're accumulating, the, this world system, your possessions, all these things, one just tangible reason that John gives is, hey, that stuff, it's gonna burn. It's gonna pass away. It's not gonna be here at the end of your life. There are things that are much more important. We see the last part of that verse says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The idea of eternal life. Okay, so the world is passing away. Flip back over with me to 2 Peter. It's probably just a page over in your Bible. 2 Peter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Listen in, read it along with me. But this idea that the world is literally going to come to an end. Peter is saying, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Look at these last few verses. It says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Sounds like Peter believed in a literal God creating. Verse 6, And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We're not there yet, right? But there is coming a day just as God literally created that this earth, as we know it, will perish. So he's saying, hey, don't love the world. One of the reasons for that, well, he has already given one of the reasons for that. But if you love the world, you're not going to love God. You're going to be pulled away from him. Another reason, just tangibly, why are you pouring your love and your affections into something that's going to burn? It's going to be gone. 
In Hebrews chapter 9, it says that every person is going, there is appointed unto man a day that everyone's going to die, and after that, the judgment. So whether you're here, and you know, this gets into what your views of are of the end times and so forth, but regardless of whether you're here when Christ returns, we're all looking at a calendar in which there's a death date. We don't know when it is for each of us, but there's coming a day in which you will stand before a holy God and you will either give an account as a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ and someone who's had your sins forgiven, not because of your goodness, but because of your belief in Jesus Christ who died and shed his blood on your behalf. You will stand there and that's it. And then all of a sudden, all of the things perhaps that we've wasted and frittered our lives with, they don't matter. It's worthless. It's vain. And perhaps we'll wish, man, I wish I would have been more focused. I wish I would have set my affections stronger towards God than stuff that I can't take with me. The world will pass away. That's one motivation. Why would we set our affections on something that's so temporary and fleeting? Then lastly, it says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And if you look at that, you could say, oh, you know, at, at first glance, you might just say, well, you know, if you do enough stuff, it says if you do, if you do the will of God, but I think it ties in with the whole message of what Paul has been, or excuse me, that John has been saying. Remember, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, and again, this is not a, you do enough stuff, you say no to the world enough, and, and at some point you will arrive and God will look at you and say, yes, you've done enough good things. I can see that you're really trying. I'll let you into my presence. No. The only thing that you and I will ever contribute to our spiritual state is the sin that separates us from a holy God. And it is purely the love of God who loved us first who sent Jesus to enter the mess of humanity, and he did so so that man could be reconciled to a holy God instead of separated, doomed for the judgment that we all deserve. So if you love God, if you've recognized that the only way to be in relationship with God is by simply bending the knee, humbly saying, God, I deserve your punishment, but thank you. Thank you for loving a sinner like me. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that his blood was shed to wash them away. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead three days later. I believe in that. I want you. I want to follow you all of my days. Save me, God. And if you do that, if you believe, if you, if you submit to God, you will love God. And you will find that when he pours his spirit into your life at that moment of salvation, that, that your affections are changed. That you will want to love God. You will want to keep his commandments. You will want to say no to the world. 
at times. You will still war with that, right? There's still that inner conflict of, yes, I want that. No, I'm a child of God. I, I don't want that. You'll continually wrestle with that. But if you love God, if you desire to do the will of God, it says you will abide forever. That you will be in the presence of a holy God. You will be worshiping with all the other saints from all the ages forever and ever and ever. So again, he kind of paints this, hey, which do you want? Do you want to love the world? By the way, it's going to burn. It's temporary. It's a waste. Or do you want to love God? Do you want to accept his plan of salvation and say no to, hey, I can't do this myself? And do you want to be in the presence of a holy God forever and ever, worshiping with all of the saints? Which one makes the most sense? So a few concluding thoughts with this is, I think it's a, a good opportunity for us to kind of evaluate and say, where are my affections? Do I love God or do I love the world? The first possibility is you look at that and you'd say, you know what, I'm torn. I mean, I love God, but I look at my life. I don't know. Well, the first possibility is you're not saved. Again, he's writing this letter, hopefully, so that you can evaluate and, and see whether you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you have eternal life. 1 John 5.13, again, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So this morning I would say, hey, as we're teaching through, as we're reading, as we're studying the book of 1 John, he's given some, some tests in a sense to, for us to filter and evaluate, okay, I know my lips say I love God, but do I really love God? Do I really have a relationship with God? Or do you just find that, hey, my affections, my life, my flesh, it, it says that I really love the world and I may be lost. One possibility that you're not saved. You don't necessarily need to turn there, but 2 Timothy 4.10 is kind of a scary verse. Um, 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul's writing this. He says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And, you know, one of the prayers for my children, and we pray this almost every night, but God, help my kids. Help my kids to, to love you to see themselves as sinners that fall short of the glory of God, to receive that gift of eternal life, but to love you and serve you all of their days. Because in a sense, that's, that's the test, all right? We find that um, Jesus gave the parable of the seeds. Immediately, there's a few different soils that show that hey, at first glance, it seems like there's something going on spiritually. But what is the real test? The real test is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will continue to love God all of your days. Not without falling, not without stumbling periodically, but, but you will love him and you will be with him and you'll serve him all of your days. You know, I think probably all of us have had experiences, you know, where you've had family members, you've known people that maybe they went to a vacation Bible school or something and they prayed a prayer and maybe they got baptized and then you just look at their life and, 
you know, some of them are denying the faith now. There was a kid in my youth group, probably multiple kids in my youth group, that no longer would claim to be a Christian. Well, that's a pretty clear indicator that they're not in Christ, right? Demas, at one point, it, everything looked good. Paul had poured into him, and now what does Paul say? Hey, Demas has left me. He's left for Thessalonica because he loves the world. And Thessalonica was kind of like the world, one of the world centers where you could indulge in whatever you wanted to. And I think the second possibility is if you're not saved, the second possibility is that if you're in Christ and, and you're kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm not where I should be, I'm not where I was at once, then maybe you've lost your first love. I think that's a possibility. That we've gotten sidetracked, we've gotten consumed by, by stuff or things or the, the routines of life, and we've allowed the important things to be shoved aside. And in doing so, we've drawn further away from God. The Romans 12, 1 and 2, I'd like to read that one more time, the passage that Phil read at the very beginning. And I think it gives us one of the, one of the keys to this. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So I think there's an action step there, right? How do we renew our minds? Well, one of the ways you're here, that's one way that you can do that. Be involved in a Christian community that is worshiping God. Hearing the teaching and, and preaching of God's word. Being in a life group where you're exposed to that as well, where you're interacting and sharing each other's burdens. On your own, on a daily basis, you're getting into God's word and, and you're studying and you're reading and you're, you're spending time growing in your love relationship with God. Listening to good music. Listening to things that are going to build you up rather than tear you down. And then lastly, you know, this, this is kind of the, the battle, right? That we need to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's, the, that's like the million-dollar question and tension for the, for the Christian, right? Is to be in the world so that you have impact, so that you're building relationships to point people to Jesus, but not being spotted and tainted by the world. And some of the ways, I think, just very tangibly that we've got to be really careful with are, one is media, music that you listen to, websites that you visit, books and magazines that you read, um, peers that you are in cahoots with, media, it's a big thing. And parents, you know, this is one of the things that we've got to wrestle with is, hey, what are we going to let our kids, what are we going to let them watch and listen to? What safeguards are we going to put? And also, how are we going to teach them to interact with peers that do those things and that watch those things? What about the world philosophies? What about school indoctrination? You know, you, you hear this uh, all over again. Kids that grow up in Christ, good Christian churches, they go off to college, maybe they go to a secular university. One, two years later, they're surrounded by some of the smartest minds that are out there, and they don't really know how to interact with what they believe. 
and pretty soon they buy into the philosophies of the world and their faith has been shipwrecked. Media, world philosophies, school indoctrination, and then philosophies such as the American dream, the idea of, hey, accumulate as much as you can. That's what's going to bring you satisfaction. The world's philosophies about love and relationships and how to find the most joy and what is really wholesome and what God has endorsed and desired for you and your relationships. Religion, if you listen to the world's ideas, hey, you have your faith, I'll have my faith. At the end of the day, you know, we're all good. God loves everyone. Surely, a loving God, he wouldn't send anybody to hell, would he? I mean, you have all kinds of these philosophies, I think, that are kind of wrapped up in this idea of the cosmos, the world system, the worldviews. So for all of us, where is our affection? Is it with God or is it with the world? And as parents, there's an application here. What are we doing to, to safeguard our kids and yet also teaching them to be in the world and to be able to relate to people that are in the world and have a love for them and yet be strong enough and build their faith and use logic because this is not a fairy tale. This is not an unreasonable faith. There is evidence for it that points internally and externally that point to this being truth. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for who you are. I thank you for your great love for us, and I pray that we would